I'd like for you to turn to the third chapter of the book of Malachi, reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The third chapter of the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so it ought to be easy for you to find. Now I hope you'll turn to that passage that begins at verse 1 and reads through verse 7. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger in the co- of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? I'm gearing up for my 50th birthday. I figure that it'll take me about six months to get ready for it. Some of you have been so faithful to remind me that I am pushing 50. I heard Ron Dunn say one time, he said, I hope pulling 50 is easier than pushing it. Some of you are faithful to remind me that I'm pushing 50. And so in honor of my 50th birthday, I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and he, he asked me, what would you change? If you could go back and live it over again, what would be different? What would you change? Would you make the same choices? I heard about a guy who was celebrating his 50th anniversary. His friend said to him, Fred, if you had it all to do over, would you marry the same woman? He thought about it a while and said, like she was or like she is? (laughs) Well, I'd marry the same woman like she was and like she is. And then comes the big question. Would you, would you be a preacher if you had it all to do over again? That's a tough one. I surrendered to preach when I was 18. And I started pastoring a church when I was 19 years of age. I've never done anything else. I wouldn't even know how to go out and look for a real job. <laughs> and I've thought about it some, you know, since the question, would you, would you be a preacher? I'll have to admit that there have been times when I wanted to throw off the mantle. I wanted to quit. 
And because I am a part of humanity, there have been times when I have felt disappointed in God. And I felt that God had let me down. Much like Jeremiah, who, who complained that God had seduced him. He said, you talked me into being a prophet, but you didn't tell me what it's like, it about, what it was like. He said, you got me into this, but you didn't tell me what I was going to have to face when I got into it. And there have been times, I think, when I thought that if I were God, I would have done it better. And I've asked myself since the question, have I been satisfied with what I've been given and how I've been treated? Should the decision of an 18-year-old boy bind a man for life? I was going through my files the other day, kind of doing a little spring cleaning, and I came up on some old sermons, yellowed with time and mellowed with age. Sermons I preached first. First thing I did after reading them was get out on my knees and ask God to forgive me for, for torturing those poor people. So, long on zeal and short on knowledge. And I had to ask myself the question, has this zeal that I had when I started out, has it died? Maybe it hadn't died, but it's just become more disciplined, more acceptable, more manageable. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning on the occasion of the, of the observance of Adult Sunday. Religion after 50. And I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question, or these questions. Has familiarity with God bred complacency? Am I as careful now with the way I walk and the way I talk as I used to be? And can I pass people on the street without wondering where they're going to spend eternity, bound for heaven or hell? There were some of the questions that the people of Malachi's day had to ask. Has this fire with, of God, that burned in my heart for God waned? Am I still as faithful as I used to be? What's it all about? For Malachi preached or prophesied at about 425 B.C. It was a hundred years after the Jews had returned from Babylonian captivity. And their one goal in life was to rebuild the temple. And they thought, if we rebuild the temple, God will return the glory days to Israel. If we reinstitute the sacrifices, God will bring back the golden years. And so they set out to rebuild the temple. And they had some good times and bad times. They had some ups and downs. They had some encouragement and discouragement. But they finally got the temple built and they waited for God to come in glory. And they waited a hundred years. And God did not return the golden years to Israel. And He didn't return the glory days to the nation. And they got discouraged. And they said, frankly, this is not what we thought it would be. It's not turned out like we thought it would turn out. It's not like the preacher said it'd be. You know, if I become a Christian, all my problems will be solved. <laughs> it's just going to be one big joy ride, one blessing on top of another blessing. And it didn't turn out like that. And they said, frankly, we're disappointed in God. For some of the same old pain and heartache and failure we experienced in Babylon, we're having here. It's not much different than it was in Babylon. And well... If God's not serious about our rebuilding the temple, we just won't be serious about God. Oh, they kept up their 
temple religion, of course. They didn't neglect that or forget that. They put on their Sabbath faces and they punched their religious time clock and they gave their religious dues. But the heart wasn't in it. It was just the heart wasn't there. There was just no heart to it. And so they came to adulthood in their religious pilgrimage and, and they realized they had lost their zeal. I want to call your attention this morning to three things from this text. I hope you're with me. First, that even in the midst of the practice of the mechanics of religion, our spiritual life can ebb and die. You know what Jesus warned about when He warned in prayer? He said, be careful when you enter the place of prayer because there, He said, don't let anger and bitterness and pride enter in. Now you'd think that if there's one place on earth where you'd be safe from sin, it would be the place of prayer. You could just get in the closet and close the door and there in the place of prayer you'd be free from the presence of sin. But right there in the presence, in the place of prayer, sin comes in and wipes his dirty feet on the floor. Some of the worst thoughts I ever have are thoughts I think while I'm in prayer. Right in the midst of the practice of the mechanics of religion, our heart can get cold and calloused. And we become professional. That's what we are. Most of us are veterans. You know, we're veterans. I've even had myself, I've had people refer to me as a professional religious leader. I guess I am. You are too. We're, we're, we're pros at it, aren't we? I mean, we know all the ropes. We're veterans. We know the right words. We know the right phrases. We know when to get up, when to sit down. We don't even need a bulletin. Occasionally, some rookie will slip in among us, you know, and he's all fired up. He's got a lot of love, a lot of hunger for the Word. But us old veterans, you know, we look at each other with knowing glances, and we say in our glances, he'll fit right, he'll catch on, he'll get the ropes. I can tell you what goes on in a Baptist church on Sunday morning anywhere in the Southern Baptist Convention. When it happens, we know what the song leader is going to say before he says it. We know what the minister of, of religious education is going to say before he says it, and we know what the preacher's going to say before he says it. We just don't know what text he's going to use. I mean, we're veterans. And we become professional. So in the practice of our religious mechanics, the zeal, the spiritual life begins to ebb. That's why Malachi has been called the Hebrew Socrates. Because he goes around asking questions. This, this book is full of questions. As a matter of fact, there, are a series, there is a series of seven questions that sets the theme of this book. If you have a King James, they all begin with the word, wherein have we? If you have a New American Standard, they begin with the words, how have we? Look at them. I have loved you, verse 2 of chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Verse 6. Where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, you're presenting to me food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? Verse 17 of chapter 2, 
You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied you? Verse 7 of chapter 3. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts, yet you say, How shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You see, I've loved you, says the Lord. And yet you say, how have you loved us? There's no evidence of your love. You know, so, so we get calloused to the Spirit of God. And we get cold to the Spirit of God. And that's what's happening here, you see. And they're away from God and they don't even know it. What a tragedy. There is this spiritual declension. They've drifted away from God and they don't even know it. And they're away from God and they don't even show it. Well, you see, being away from God is not something physical. I mean, they're church. They're carrying on their religious exercises. Let me tell you something. You can be in church every time you should be in church and be away from God. They're away from God and, 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 don't even, and, and don't even show it. It reminds me of old Moses. And the Bible says that he'd go in and talk to God and he'd go in, when he'd go in and talk to God, they'd talk face to face as a friend, talking to his friend. And he'd come out of there with his face shining in the effulgent glory of God. And he'd, he'd be so bright with God's glory that, that the people couldn't stand to look on him. It was too bright. hurt their eyes. So he put this veil on. Kind of hide the glory so the people could look at him. After a while that glory began to die out and fade away when Moses kept the veil on. Not because of the glory but because the glory was gone. Now we come to revival meetings, and we come to lay renewal weekends, and we get fired up, and we come out of those meetings all aglow. We have this feeling of warmth and wonder in our hearts, and, and then we go out there where there's all this stuff going on out there, and this glory begins to fade and die. But we don't take the veil off, do we? We say the same words like praise the Lord and God, Jesus is Lord. And we keep the veil on not because of the glory, but because the glory is gone. We are away from God, but we don't show it. Now the interesting thing about this text is that when God told Israel to shape up, He didn't tell them to get a new form of worship. He didn't say you need to worship me a different way. He said you guys need you a new heart. Now watch this. Occasionally some people come to me and they say, I, 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 boy, we've learned how to worship in our church. We learned how to worship. God told me not long ago, He said, we left the Baptist church because we learned how to worship. You guys don't know how to worship. I know what they're talking about. I don't have any problem with that. If a person can worship, raising his hands and shouting, that's the way you ought to worship. Let me tell you something. The problem is not in the form of worship. The problem is in the heart of the worshiper. He didn't say you go get you another way to worship. He said, you folks need a new heart. For in the midst of the practice of the mechanics of religion, your spiritual life has died. Second, even though our spiritual life changes, we don't. 
Now occasionally there are unfortunate translations of Scripture. Verse 6 is one of them. Verse 6 says, For I the Lord do not change, therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now the word consumed there is really not the best word. If you read this in the context, I, I gave a little emphasis as I read through it the first time. The word is really, it, it shouldn't be translated like this. I the Lord have not changed, I am unchanged, immutable, therefore you're not going to be destroyed or consumed. That's the way we translate it. It's really not the best way to translate that. Here it is. What he's saying is this. He's saying, I, the Lord, have not changed, but unfortunately, neither have you. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I see you bring all these sacrifices, and I see you go through the mechanics of religious exercise. I see you there in church. I see you giving all of the religious dues that are, that are required. I see that. But you're still the same old people you've always been. You haven't changed. That's what he's saying. I haven't changed, unfortunately, neither have you. That's what God is saying. You remember when the children of Israel got into the land of, of Canaan? Joshua, their leader, got up to make a speech. And this is what he said. He said, you need to put away the strange gods of your fathers that came from Egypt. I mean, put those strange gods away. Now, the amazing thing about that, watch this, was that the people to whom he spoke had never been to Egypt. They had not been to Egypt. Everybody over 20, except Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. Well, where did they get these gods from Egypt? Their fathers handed them down to them. They got them from their dads. They got them handed down. And after 40 years in the wilderness and all that went on in the wilderness, they still had traces of the gods of Egypt in their lives. Are you listening to me? It sure is hard to let go of the old gods of the past, isn't it? I mean, you'd think that after 40 years, these people would put away those strange gods but it's pretty tough to lay down and let go of old gods. I'm sure you're familiar with the first three words in the Old Testament. They are these, in beginning God. The these not there, the article's not there. In beginning God. You may not be familiar with the last three words of the Old Testament. If you look down, you'll see them. With a curse. Now the Old Testament began with God watch this, and ended with a curse. The book of Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament and it was written to let us know what it was like just before the lights went out. The book of Malachi was written to let us know what it was like when God stopped talking. For God had been talking for these thousands of years. He'd been speaking to His people and they'd been turning a deaf ear. Oh, there were occasions when they heard from God and responded the way He wanted them to. But for the most part, for thousands of years, God had spoken in diverse manners, says the author of the book of Hebrews. And in sundry times, He spoke, He spoke, and they turned a deaf ear. So God just quit talking. And you come to the book of Malachi and at the end of that book, God became silent, and for 400 years they did not hear from God. 
Now you, can you imagine how frightening that? That's scary, isn't it? To think that God is not going to speak again. For 400 years, no prophet preached, no singer sang, God was silent. Now the book of Malachi was written to show us what happened just before God pronounced the curse of His silence. Now watch this. You'd think that something that began with such promise, such potential, such creative energy as the creation of God began in the garden with God, ended up with a curse. You'd think that after thousands of years these people be farther along than that. But it's been 2,000 years and we're still trying to be like the New Testament church. Let me ask you a serious question. I hope you'll answer this in your heart. How long has it been since you were saved? How long has that been? When, when were you, how long have you been saved? How much better are you today than you were then? How long has the journey been from the point of your salvation to where you are right now in time? How much growth have you experienced? How much better off are you? How much better are you now than when you first started? It sure is hard to let go of the old gods of Egypt, isn't it? Unfortunately. We hadn't changed much. One last thought, please. In the midst of all the change, God hasn't. And this is what He says. He says, For I, the Lord, that word there, Lord, is, is a, it's in, the, it's in the, the, the ultimate case letter. It's, it's capitalized. It means sovereign. He said, I... Sovereign. They didn't even have the article. I, the Lord, and says, I, sovereign. And it means that God, he's saying that, that God is sovereign. He's the one in control. Now, I don't understand the sovereignty of God any more than you do. I have, some, I, have a, I have some real problems or questions with how God could be sovereign and man have freedom to choose. How God could be sovereign and man reject Him. You, you, you explain to me how it is that, that if you have faith, God gave it to you, and if you don't have faith, you're accountable for it. You explain that to me. I don't understand the sovereignty of God, but I have tremendous comfort. I find tremendous comfort in this statement. Because I am sovereign, he said, I do not change. Now, when I started pushing 50... I started resisting to some degree change. I know you young guys, you say, I, I, I like change. Well, if you do you really, then you must prefer McDonald's over homestyle cooking. I mean, you know, come on, let's be honest. You don't like to ever change. I got some problems with some of the change. Am I, am I old fogey? I mean... I still believe, yeah, the kids are shaking their head. I still believe that, that you ought to be able to give your word and that word be bond. And I, I believe that you ought to, a guy gives you his word, you ought to be able to trust that and not have to manipulate and maneuver, you know, and watch your back, see if somebody's going to do a number on you. I heard the other day that America has 6% of the world's population and 60% of the attorneys. Now, the sad part of that is we need them. We couldn't get along without them. How much of your life, how many of you could, could go without 
some kind of legal advice. I mean, we have to. What, what has happened here? I, 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 uh, I, yeah, I guess I am a little old fogey. I, re- I heard the other day that 98% of all the love scenes on television are scenes out of wedlock. Now, I know there's something positive to be said about the freedom to express yourself, but I got some problems with that. So that in the midst of all of the change that's happening around us, the transitions that are occurring, God said, I am still the same. I am still the same. I suggest you return to me. I love that word. I return. I've been doing a little study. I read often from First and Second Timothy. That's my job description there. My job description is there. And I'm amazed at how important, how often the Apostle Paul, how, how much emphasis he places on tradition. Now we've made a mistake when we think that when Paul broke with Judaism and became a minister to the Gentiles, he just threw off all Jewish tradition. He didn't. The guys are in my Sunday school class on Sunday morning. We study the book of Acts and we found out that, that when Paul got his credentials to be a minister to the Gentiles, one thing he had to promise was that he wouldn't just throw off Jewish tradition as though it were valueless. He didn't do that. And when I read First and Second Timothy, I realize how important tradition was to that man. And this is what he said. He said to Timothy, he said, Remember to do what your mother and your grandmother taught you to do. Karl Barth came to America, that German theologian. He has the most profound statements on grace of any contemporary theologian. He is a profound German theologian. He came to the United States. A reporter was there, and he pointed to all these books and all these articles that he had written, and he said, how do you know that all of those things, all that's the truth? And Karl Barth said, because my mother told me it was. If you want to turn sometime to the first to first John, you'll find that John's giving this warning about the Antichrist. And he said, when the Antichrist comes, when the anti-spiritual emphasis occurs, he said, return to the things you learned from beginning. And Jeremiah said, you need to put some signposts along the way so you'll know how to get back. I love it. The word return. God said, I have not changed. My suggestion to you is that you return to me. That's a big word. I want you to get this picture this morning. There's a large group of people together. Everybody's fat. Got a big, got some, got some tubes, inner tubes around there under the shirt. You can see them going swimming. You, everybody's got a roll. And everybody's got his gray hair, either they're gray haired or they're bald. You know, the guys, not the girls, the, ball, the guys. And everybody's got pictures, you know, and they're showing their pictures. Well, what is that? That's a 40 year reunion, class reunion, 40 years. I heard the other day that the most popular event, you know, the most popular event was the 40 year class reunion. So everybody gets back and they're all fat and bald and gray 
and everybody's got pictures of grandkids, and they're just having the best time. After the early service, a guy in the early service caught me in the chapel where I teach my class, and he said, last year I went to my 40th reunion, and he told me how fun it was. He said, it is, everybody was there at the 40th reunion. It's good to come back, isn't it? It's good to return. It's good to go back. The Lord said, I haven't changed. You've, you've changed. I haven't changed. My suggestion to you is come home, come back. That's why NBC has as their motto, come home to NBC. I, I still get lump in my throat at Christmas time when I see those commercials. It doesn't matter to me if it's Budweiser. You know, here, here's, this, here's this black mammy, black mother cooking Christmas dinner and she's, you can see a little sadness on her face and, and here's this boy in his uniform, uni, military uniform he, he, his daddy has slipped him in the back door, he goes over and he taps his mama on the shoulder and she turns and they embrace and, and here's a taxi pull up and let this boy out. He goes in, a big Christmas tree there in the corner, and kids come running down the stairs. Joey's home. Joey's home. It's wonderful to go home, isn't it? I was preaching a revival meeting. Not a revival. I was preaching one Sunday in Brownfield, Texas. My wife was with me. She verified this preacher's story. Sand was blowing 100 miles an hour. Most dreary day. I preached that morning on the return of the prodigal, the return of the prodigal. And when I gave the invitation, I noticed a commotion right over to my right, about where Dr. Parkinson sits. And there was a boy in that service, true story. He'd come in and had slipped in and sat down on the back row. He hadn't, he had, his parents hadn't heard from him in years. He just, they didn't even know he was there. And somehow God touched his heart with this, with this sermon on the return of the prodigal. And he came forward, and, and he, him and his, his mother and his father, they were just over there just in a big commotion. You know, it's good to go home, isn't it? And so God said, I haven't changed. My advice to you is to return to me. And so John Denver's written that enchanting song, about the boy coming home, the man coming home. It goes like this. There's a storm across the valley. The clouds are rolling in. This afternoon lies heavy on his shoulders. There's a truck out on the four lane about a mile or two away, and the whining of its wheels just makes it colder. He's an hour from riding on your prayers up in the sky. Ten days away from home are barely gone. There's a fire softly burning. Supper's on the stove. The light, it's the light in your eyes that makes him warm. Oh, it's good to be back home again. Sometimes this old farm seems like a long lost friend. Yes, oh, it's good to be back home again. So God said, I haven't changed. Why don't you come on home? Let's pray together.